part of it was the will to want to grow. We brought in good investors. We focused on one thing. We've treated our people really well. We've attracted really good talent. You put all those things together and you're going to build a great business. Sounds really simple. It's not easy. The leaders that have had the most transparency over time, they're the ones that you remember. In times like these, adverse economic times, employees don't want to hear happy talk. Work every day like somebody's trying to take it from you because they are. Well, hello. Welcome to uh, Recruitability's Nothing Sacred Podcast. As always, I'm Nat Elias here with my co-host Nick. How you doing, Nick? Hey, doing great, doing great. Welcome to the Third Lamar Studio to uh, Eric Dunnigan, our guest this week. That's right. We're excited to be doing this on video in the Third Lamar Production Studios. This is a great setup. Yeah, yeah. We did a little set design here. Wanted to make sure the colors matched recruitability in the background. So. That's right. Thank you for noticing. I know it's. I, I noticed the little things, Nick. I noticed the little things. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like a palette, you know, which I appreciate being in the shipping business. The, That's just right. The, the wood. Segway. <laughs> uh, our guest today, Eric Dunnigan, he's a great friend of mine. I'm so excited to have him on uh, on the podcast. Uh, he and I spent a lot of time and drinks talking about uh, uh, work, teams, retention, hiring strategies. I've learned a lot from what Eric's done. Uh, with his business. Um, he is the co-founder and president of Arrive Logistics, uh, which is headquartered here in Austin. But you guys are Chicago. Where, where are some of the other locations? San Antonio, Tampa. Tampa. Opening up more offices. We'll get into kind of why. But yeah, yeah. started here. Well, uh, uh, tell us tell us the quick story in Arrive. I think, uh, uh, you know, first off to the person that has no idea what Arrive sure. Logistics is, tell us the story and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yep. Okay. Arrive Logistics is a, I'll make it really simple, a freight brokerage, right? So we sit between the shipper and the trucking company. Shipping's a huge space. Logistics is a big word. Um, most all the business we do is domestic middle mile truckload. Some people talk about final mile when someone drops off a package at your door, first mile, other things like that. 18-wheelers on the highway, that's what we do. Big fragmented space, big market. That's that's the market we play in. We get paid by a shipper, we turn around, and we pay the trucking company. So that's the gist. Um, and this was your first job out of college? Yeah, so I'll kind of get into why I got into it. Um, which is fascinating. Which is kind of, okay. you know, hopefully it's fascinating. We'll see. Um, <laughs> I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, uh, Rust Belt town. Good town. That doesn't have a negative connotation, but... Just a Midwestern town, good family, um, big family, five siblings, um, you know, but it was a blue collar area, right? And so like one summer in college, I worked at a steel mill. One summer I worked for my mom's, the company she worked at and just kind of worked in the warehouse. So the idea of being in a blue collar industry didn't, didn't really scare me. I went to a liberal arts school in Ohio called Miami University, which people down here in Texas are like Miami, Florida. No, it's in Ohio. Um, Big Ben, Roethlisberger, went there. Claim to fame. Yeah. Everybody knows Big Ben. Um, Wally Zerbiak, too. And Zerbiak, and it, it's, right. a, it's a pretty Wally good Zerbiak. school. It's a liberal arts school, more known in the Midwest and the East Coast. And so got into the business school. It's a great business school. And so I'm thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to go out and make something of myself. And uh, it was 2008, right, which we all remember was not the best year to enter the job market, I guess maybe compared to 2020 for some of those grads. And um, – yeah, I needed to figure out what I was going to do. I had student loans. I didn't really want to stay in Ohio. I just wanted to kind of see something new. And so Chicago was where I wanted to be. That was kind of my criteria. I went, um, went to the job fair like a lot of us probably did. There was no handshake or if there were recruiters, I certainly wasn't wasn't talking to them. Um, 
Had a fraternity brother who worked at a big brokerage house in Chicago, the biggest at the time, still the biggest, uh, called C.H. Robinson, big public company. And um, they had an office that was right downtown, good atmosphere. You know, at that point, just getting an interview was a win, right? Not mm-hmm. let alone getting a job. So <laughs> get the job. I think my offer was for 35 grand or 36 grand. And I was like, done, you know, let's do it. So I signed a lease. This is like fall of 08. I remember coming home for like winter break and I felt like I had made something of myself. Okay, so then second semester of college, I'm very much not focused because I've got my job and I'm just trying to get out of there. And they call me, I don't know, it was right before spring break, so probably February of 2009. It was somebody in HR from from this company and they said, hey, you know, stock's not doing well, economy's not doing well, you know, we're on a hiring freeze, your offer's still good, we just don't have a start date for you. I'm like, I'm this dumb college kid. Like, what do you mean? What does that mean? And she's like, you need to go find another job. So I'm like, shit, you know, signed a lease, whatever. And so I went back to a professor at that time. That's, I didn't have a network of people, certainly not in Chicago. And he said, is that the industry you want to be in? Like there's other companies that do that. And you know, I can reach out to them for you. And I said, sure, you know, it seemed good enough, you know? And so I ended up at a company, maybe a hundred people, 150 people on the North side of Chicago owned by one, well, a couple guys, but really one guy, um, really respected in the industry. Didn't realize that at the time, came in, this is 2009, um, there was no glass door, there was no, I don't even think LinkedIn was really a thing back then. So it was just show up on this day, here's your two weeks of vacation, and, you know, and that was great. So graduated, moved up there, uh, it was a sales role, right? And my job was to just call shippers and, you know, here's the internet and here's a phone, good luck. Um, I've told you before, sales was like the first thing I was like really good at. And I didn't even know that I was good at. I had 70 grand of student debt. I was broke. Didn't feel broke. But, you know, I'm starting to pay these interest payments on my loan. And I'm like, where's all the, why is there no principal? Why is it not going down? That was a quick lesson in finance. But, um, wasn't Just think it, if you waited, well, it would be all forgiven now. Yeah, no kidding. Well, the interest would have racked up. 10 grand <laughs> wouldn't have gone very far. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't a good athlete. Honestly, wasn't even a great student. I loved college. I, I'm not sure I really liked class. But, Sales was like, wow, I'm really good at this. I had a quick start, started to have success, you know, being kind of long-winded here, but um, it was great. I mean, it was one of those jobs where you could shoot the lights out and that was my number one priority. I was a single guy that was put everything into it and it was awesome. Um, that company continued to grow. Fast forward a couple of years, my really good buddy from college, Matt Pyatt, who's my co-founder at Arrive, um, he moved up to Chicago. We were roommates, coworkers, carpool buddies, basically lived the same life. Um, he was definitely more entrepreneurial. Um, and the job honestly kind of catered to people that were entrepreneurial because it was really just a platform at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. you kind of had to go out and make something to yourself. So he started approaching me probably in 2012 saying, hey, you're doing really well in sales. You know, you're a good sales guy. I understand general business sense. I think, you know, we could we could leave this and, and do our own thing. And I told him no for about a year. I was starting to date my now wife and she was from Chicago. My family was close by and I was making really good money. And so... A year or so goes by, he starts basically harassing me and telling me why, you know, I need to get the courage. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, and at the time, I was 25 or 26, right? And so we were all, we've all been there, right? You have this kind of confidence that you probably shouldn't have, but you have it. You feel like you've got the whole world figured out. And But the reality was at that age, I had a car, a cell phone payment. My loans were gone. That was really it. And whatever beer tab I was going to rack up for the weekend. I mean, that was my life. What risks did I really have, right? And so our, our underwriting was really, okay, well, let's go out and find some money because you do need a lot of cash to run this business. We're, I'll get into kind of why that is. Um, 
if this thing fails, we'll go get another job, right? That was the worst case scenario. And we believed in ourselves that it wouldn't fail. But if it did, um, you know, we're sales guys. We'll go figure something else out. Mm-hmm. And so Matt knew, um, he had a couple friends that were in Texas. They actually run a company now called Nutribolt that maybe people that listen are familiar with. But at that time, this was 2013, um, much smaller. They hadn't even, they weren't even called Nutribolt yet. But they had just recapped their business. They had some liquidity. Um, they also had some freight challenges. And so we just sat down together and, they were maybe 30, 31 at the time, 32. We were 25, 26, 27. Um, and the vision was, hey, why don't you guys come down to Austin, stand this business up. You can start with our business as your first customer. That'll cover the expenses. That's kind of how we modeled the business. And if we make something of it, great. They were going to have to hire a consultant anyway. So the expenses they were really investing in the business basically just gave them a chance to launch a business out of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we're saying, okay, these guys are going to pony up the capital. They're going to pay us. We're going to get, we're going to learn a lot no matter what. And it seemed like the right thing to do. And so we quit our jobs in January of 2014, which is a, a weird time to be in Chicago, right? It's kind of the kind of go into hibernation. It's very cold. And we just kind of sat out. We had to not compete for six months, but we needed that time to really put the business together. Called a recruiter wasn't NAD, but it was a different company that really specialized in the space. And, we, you know, we put a team together of, of 10. We moved down to Austin, um, used Tim Mooney, actually, to find our first space on, right. on Dirty Sixth, um, right above what I guess is now Eureka, which I always tell people my first piece of advice is if you start a business really in any city, don't do it on, like, the busiest street in town yeah. above a bar. It's a good way. You're just creating down. You're just stacking the deck against yourself. Um, and so it was 10 guys in a room just trying to – hustle and fake it till you make it and all, all that stuff. And so to fast forward, um, we, the company that I came from in Chicago ended up selling the year after we didn't leave for that reason. We had no idea. We never left because we were unhappy. It was a great place to work. Um, but they sold to a big public company. It was a tough integration. A lot of the folks it ended up being a really good integration for them, but a lot of the people that I had worked alongside, it was just tough for them. And so they said, Hey, would you guys put an office in Chicago? We'd love to come work with you. Um, I'm like, wow, you know, of course. So, so we figured out how to make it work for everybody, and we tied a lot of people in. I'll get into that later. Um, but now it's just instead of having me as the main salesperson, right, and Matt was selling too, but he was also kind of managing other parts of the business, now we have like 15, right? Well, of course we're going to start to grow. And so that was a fortunate break. We had to attract the people. We had to compensate them. We had to do all those things. But that was really an accelerant that started to grow the business. And so really 14, 15, 16, 17 was just Austin, Chicago, um, the business, you know, we started bringing in training classes of, of new salespeople probably six or eight months in, but five, six people at a time. And to be quite honest, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff, but the business today has grown a lot. It's changed a lot, and we, we're going to get kind of how that is. But if you look at the business today, so Austin is headquarters, there's 11 or 1,200 people in Austin. Chicago's four or 500. We've got, if you include BPO, people in Columbia, Philippines, we've got almost 2,500 employees. And what, um, you know, our space, there's 15,000 companies to do exactly what we do. Uh, of just domestic truckload, which is a big chunk of the space, we're probably number six or seven. If you include everybody, we're probably number 10 or 12. Um, we've raised a good amount of money, but from great investors that have really helped us, you know, think differently about the business. We've hired an unbelievable team. Obviously, you have to do that to, to scale to where we have. So what started as just, hey, let's go learn a lot, and maybe we can start a business and work for ourselves, so to speak, has turned into what, what we never thought was possible. Wow. Um, so, so we'll do two and a half billion in revenue this year and very profitable and good culture, good environment, um, lots of happy customers and 
pretty That's crazy. Awesome. Such a good story. Yeah. And what do you think the different? I mean, you mentioned fifteen thousand people. Oh, by the way, I forgot one part. One of the guys on our board now is actually actually lives in Austin. Now, good dude. <coughs> he was the CFO of that big company that took my job off around. And uh, honestly, had that not happened, I probably would have stuck with the big company. Which I always tell people too, it's good to get contrast. You can learn a lot at big companies, no doubt. And now we're kind of becoming that. But you can also learn a lot from a small business too. And you yeah. get exposed to a lot. And so you just need contrast, you need perspective. But what an ironic full circle moment that, you know, he didn't know who I was, right? Um, and now they're sitting on the board of the company. That's crazy. What do you feel is the differentiator? So I was gonna ask, what is it like? Okay, so of you, our got 15, you got 15,000 companies that do what you do, you said. You guys are six or whatever yeah. in the space now. And probably in a short time. I mean, you, you climbed up those ranks. Yeah, everybody quickly, else is. Right? There's one other company that, that's youngish, 25 years, I guess, if you can, because some of these companies are decades old. Yeah. Public yeah. companies, et cetera. We're certainly the youngest private company on the list in the top 20, top 15. Yeah. What, what do you think is the differentiator? I don't know that it's one thing. Um, Differentiators. You guys didn't figure something out that no one else really did? Honestly, no. It wasn't like we dreamed up some, you know, we had vision for what we wanted the business to do, but we didn't think this far ahead, right? I think what's allowed, I'll say this, what's allowed us to grow really quickly, and whether that's a differentiator or not, I don't know. I think part of it is we were very intentional about our growth. Oftentimes what happens in our space is Nat and I are partners, we fund the business ourselves, we grow it slowly over 10 years, we're making good money, our people are happy, and mm -hmm. we stop. Yeah. You have to be a little crazy to want to hire 2,000 people in seven or eight years. Like It's really hard to do. You break a lot of things. There's a lot of tough conversations. You doesn't always work, right? And so part of it is like the will to want to do that. Um, scale, when I got into this space, was not, you know, there's a lot of players in our space, but now the top 25 really own two-thirds, if not more. Mm -hmm. So it's, it'd be a hard, we could not probably do what we did today. It'd be very difficult. You would need a lot of money. Um, you'd need to probably buy some, et cetera. So the cliche answer is people, which we're going to get into. Um, we focused on one thing. Some companies, I think, try to do four or five things at once, and you know maybe they half-assed or they do okay. We were really, really laser-focused on one thing, and we did it really well. Um, also, the trend of shippers outsourcing, right? When shippers can't find trucks, they lean on companies like us. Yeah. We don't need to get into all this. the last two years. Everyone knows there was a big spotlight on supply chain, but that was a huge tailwind for our business. Um, it's a service model is a little bit different. It's little things. Um, you know, we've we've paid our people really well. We've tied a lot of people in. Twenty percent of our company. Um, is owned by non-founders, non-investors. It's not, um, we've believed that if we can go out, if Nad's going to add, you know, make my company 1% more valuable, why would I not tie him in? So yeah. we've been able to attract a lot of people that I think some companies Don't and business owners sit there and say, well, shit, I got to own the whole thing. You yeah. know, well, we were always like, we'd rather own a little of a lot, right? Yep. And a lot of low. And, and quite honestly, um, if we want to get this company to 2 billion, 3 billion, 5 billion, et cetera, well, I need... A CFO that can take a company public, and we did. We took, yeah, you know, yeah. a guy from that had taken Yeti public and others, and so yeah. you got to pay people, right? And so, part of it was the will to want to grow. We brought in good investors. We focused on one thing. We've treated our people really well. We've attracted really good talent. You put all those things together, and you're going to build a great business. Sounds really simple. It's not easy, but it yeah. wasn't that we we've, we've invested a tremendous amount in technology. Other companies have too. We're not the only one, but. Um, well, and the vision we were able to execute, honestly. You know, the vision that starts with you and Matt, and, and how you guys—you know—you didn't scale this thing. At least from what I'm gathering, you didn't scale this thing with necessarily an end in mind. Like we're going to sell it in three years and get out. Yeah, 
And, yeah. and there's, there's, you mentioned some of these other businesses and this is just, you know, in general, people that start businesses, they put a, you know, I want to get this business to 20 million, to 25 million, to hundred million, or I want to build this team and get this team to 25 people. I mean, I, you know, there's just so many people that start with an end and I'm reading, um, uh, shoe dogs right now. Have you read shoe dogs? Uh, Phil Phil yeah, I have not. But it's I heard good. So the first, literally the first page of the book, he said, um, that his, like how he lived his life and how he grew his company was don't stop, just keep going. He said, I never knew where the end was. I just knew I had to keep going. And to this day, he still doesn't have, hey, let's get Nike to this. Let's, you know, touch this part of the world or whatever it is. He just, his, um, it's basically if you're not growing, you're dying. Yeah. Yeah. He keeps that focus on growth. I mean, it's one of y'all's mottos, it's right? It's a cool LFG. feeling. And I can always tell, I go to a lot of conferences and, you know, we, we still are young. We were certainly young when we started and people, the odds are we weren't going to execute what we were telling people we were going to do in terms of how big we wanted to get and all this. We were meeting with a guy in Austin. I think he honestly thought we were insane. Like, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do this. But now that we've, you know, we're not done, but we've done, a, we've accomplished a lot. It's cool to see how people's tone change. How are you doing this? Blah, 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 blah. And so again, I, I always joke, Matt and I get a lot of credit for things that a lot of other smart people are doing at the company. I'll take credit for starting the business and attracting great people. Um, we built a really smart room and you empower people and you pay them well and you create an environment where people want to win and you can build a great business. I want to go back to earlier in your story. Um, you said you weren't a great athlete. No. You weren't a great student, but you found out I'm, quickly. I'm, I'm really ADHD. School was hard for me. Yeah. You said you're great at sales. Like, how did you realize that and what characteristics do you think make you a great salesperson? Okay. Um, you know, Matt is, Matt and I have complementary skill sets. He's, he can, I always joke, I can read the room. He's going to read in the numbers. We can, he can obviously read the room as well. I think people, it depends on what kind of sales you're talking about. Some people think sales is like, sell me this pen. You want to buy this pen? Sold. Yeah. You know, that's not oftentimes what sales is. I think sales honestly too has a bad connotation. Um, I thought sales when I was in college was like, well, if I don't go to the big four, I don't get into consulting, I don't get into banking, all the guys, just all the other people just go into sales. It's just sales. Well, as we all know, I mean, sales is just business, that business development skill set is huge. And I was, I've told that to several universities. A lot of universities now have sales programs, and I think that's great. Back to your question, I've always been a good relationship manager. Um, I didn't necessarily know that at 20 or 21, 22. I've never been scared to work. So you do have to put in the hustle, certainly in sales, right? Um, our business is a lot, I'll compare it maybe to wealth management where you can build out a really good book of relationships and then it's, it's not like I'm chasing the next deal. Some yeah. business I sell capital equipment, the deal is sold, I never talk to Nat again. Yep. I gotta go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And you still, we want people to, to hunt all the time, but a lot of it's farming and nurturing relationships and I think my ADHD fit well with our business. There's so much going on all the time. Um, so some of it was the work ethic. A lot of it was just the EQ, the emotional intelligence piece. Yeah. And being able to relate to people that, you know, we're not selling to CEOs. Um, I'm not selling an enterprise software product where I've got to be able to get in front of a, a CIO in a big room. And I could do that now, but at 22, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Sure. It's um, So it's just relationship skills. It's relationship skills. Okay. Yeah. Being able to read people. I think so. Yeah. How do a little you look bit of luck for along the way? You know, let's 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 bring that back to you know finding great people and talent. Yeah. How do you? What are the key skills that at Arrive you guys look for 
that makes somebody good at those relationship skills? How do you, how do you find that? Well, that's not easy. Um, and you hire a lot. We hire a lot of people. <laughs> we'll hire over a thousand people this year. It's, I think it's, we've got a great recruiting team. Nat's familiar with them. Um, actually, our very first recruiter is still with the business. She's hired, Carrie has hired, I don't even know how many people. Yeah, um, she's great. She's great. And so how do we hire great people? It's a different game today than what it was back five, six years ago. And why is that? Let's, let's well, I think number one, when we were small, we were okay. a startup, that attracts a different type of person than yeah. today. A lot of our energy goes into how do we build great relationships with universities, right? You start to figure out these universities are just job factories. And if you want the best people at UT or TCU or pick a school, you're not the only company, by the way, right? And so you've got to sponsor that sales competition or get in front of the class. Totally. You know, we, we may sponsor a project at Miami for all the freshman business students and it costs money, but we want our name in front of them, right? So by the time, so we're not even just thinking about how are we going to fill the hires for this fall and next year. Um, one of the reasons we're opening new offices and we have to announce it this fall is because we're going to be on campus in the next few weeks and we need to be able to talk about it because students are starting to think about where do I want to be next year when I graduate. So it's a machine. Um, back to your question of what qualities we look for. We hire for a lot of different roles today. We've got a product and engineering department that's several hundred people. We've got, you know, I'll call it, uh, we call them biz dev success, but it's really like a, you know, operate customer operations type. That's yep. a different skill set than the pure salesperson. Um, so it's not, not just sales, honestly. Um, it's a bulk of our people still today. We have a, like a big group we call them carrier sales that deal with the trucking companies. It's more of a buying role. That's a different profile. So a lot of it is knowing what roles you're looking for, what the profile is. We've hired so many people now. Where. Who yeah, fits yeah, who where? Fits where? We screen them, right, and, and try to rubric it down as much as we can. People still surprise you, right? Um, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. I mean, our, our turnover definitely jumped in 2020 and 2021. Some of that's a factor of how many new people do you hire, right? Because the kid coming out of college today thinks differently than I did in 2009 when I was just thankful to have a job. Um, and they just want different things. They expect different things, and that's their perspective. Um, and I think we've built a good business, you know, naturally, just kind of that, that caters to that. But... Um, when we get them in the door, and I meet with every training class, and they'll ask, you know, well, what does it take to be successful, blah, blah, blah. And um, I always tell them, like, look, we can invest in everything that will prevent you from being successful. We'll try to bring good leadership, good training, great technology, good capabilities, good place to come into work, whatever. But I don't control after an attitude, and it's, it's the obvious stuff. I mean, you got to want to win. I think sales, there's ups and downs. You've got to be able to have kind of a long-term view on on your role. Our our we do not want people that are just trying to leave in that first year. I always joke, you don't take our job for the base salary, right? You're, if you're in sales, you're hopefully upside. thinking about the upside, right? Um, but we've got, but we've had to rethink that too, you know? And um, you know, our cost structures changed, our compensation models have changed. And um, now you're trying to make, you know, the kid coming out of college today wants not, you know, they want to know that my base salary is going to be this. And in the first year, I'm going to make that. You know, second, you're going to make this. It's like what a lot of these big companies start. It's almost like a military hierarchy, right? As you yeah. kind of move through, they want to get exposure to different things. And so we've had to cater to that. If you're going to spend a year in customer operations, you're going to do this, and here's your pay. And as opposed to when I was coming out, it was like, here's your base, and you can earn whatever. You know, well, that's hard for somebody at 22 to really understand. They're only comparing base. And so we've had Austin, the employment market's changed a lot. Um, one of the reasons we're actively trying to get away from Austin, not leave Austin. Um, I know. We've talked about this. I mean, the employment market here is nuts. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I had to go back eight or nine years, knowing what I know today about where Austin is, that we would have started it here. I'm glad we did. I love living in Austin. Um, but it's a really tough 
place to be an employer, especially with tech. Yeah. Well, and that's because everybody made the same decision that you guys made exactly. when you all made it. And LinkedIn. Right. Yeah. So we're part of the problem. But um, they all came to town wanting the smart new grad out of college that was going to come in. And tech work. savvy. They had access to a bunch of universities and there was a lower cost of living. Right. I mean, that's why. Um, everybody opened up offices from the Bay Area. Those Bay Area offices opened up here. Those are just sales offices. Yeah. They were just inside sales reps. That's all they were. Um, uh, all of the, the executives and the tech talent was still up in the Bay Area. They were just hiring sales offices here. Yep. And then over the years, it evolved. Yep. And, and now we're, you know, I think in Apple, I think this is Apple's second or third largest campus outside yeah. of Cupertino. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. but yeah. it's Great place to live, great place to work, yeah. hard place to be. Yeah. What yeah. mistakes did you make early on in terms of hiring oh that you God. don't repeat now? I don't think we had an HR person until we had like 150 people. That was really Whoa. stupid. <laughs> don't do that. Um, and part of it was we didn't understand what HR was. We didn't understand. It's not just where you go to, you know, get yelled at or, you know. Or yell. Or you know, do the yelling. Nad, Nad was harassing Eric and I need to go talk to somebody. Yeah. It's people strategy. It's We are more of an HR company today than we are a transportation company. And I mean it because it's all about people we don't have we don't license software we don't sell widgets we bring people into a building several buildings we hire them hopefully we're the right people we train them up which and then we have to make sure we're retaining them and they're performing and all those things so hire train retain is kind of the the model we go by but um you need a lot of people that we we should have invested that probably a little bit earlier we, we figured it out but um so that was a mistake i think we sometimes too when you're growing really really fast you can't just like our accounting team as an example in the early days matt and i understood the sales piece we that we had been mm. that role right we did a really good job with that but the accounting piece we underinvested in early on you can't just it's hard to you know I'm not, i'll say unfuck it because i don't know what else what other word to use am i allowed to say that yeah, yeah. okay no you can say um, shit fucking I, okay no. <laughs> i didn't know what i was allowed to say um i got a story later about mailing shit we can talk about oh good so the the you know the sales piece we did find it, so that technology um we didn't understand how to build technology you know i remember when we went out to you know we our angel investors put in a slug of cash they did a couple chunks with us and they finally got to a point like guys you need to bring on first off you, we don't want to keep funding this business you guys are growing crazy fast you need to go get a, a real slug of capital and so we went and did a process um Thought we could kind of go, you know, the bankers, oh, you guys could market it this way, blah, blah, blah. Our tech was in like the first inning. It wasn't even tech yet. Um, and the tech basically connects the trucking companies to the people well, who are shipping? No, nah, well, kind of. I mean, the technology is our operating system for our business, right? It's what our people use every day. Yep. It's what our carriers interact with. It's how we find the carriers. It's how we send information to shippers. But it's also the engine behind the business, right? It's... Um, you know, for every dollar that comes in of revenue, we're turning around and we're paying a big chunk of that to the truck. And so your cost per load is everything. We yep. didn't even understand what that meant eight years ago, right? Yep. How we look at contribution margins, all those things. So technology drives productivity. It makes our people's life easier. It allows them to focus on building relationships and not putting a blindfold on them like we did eight, nine years ago and saying, okay, call this person that, but like what I was doing 15 years ago. Yep. Um, it also, um, it's the expectation now from these shippers, right? So if we can operate at a lower cost and still make our margin, you as the small guy will never be able to compete. And that's why venture capital has poured into the space in the last five, six years. Um, 
Anyway, so we brought on a uh, growth equity partner out of New York called Lead Edge Capital. They've backed a lot of companies in Austin. Bazaar Voice was actually their first uh, portfolio company. And then um, once they really helped us think differently about technology, we brought in a real product team. I didn't even know what the hell product meant. You know, I was like, well, you know. So learned a lot there. That was a mistake of, uh, I don't know about a mistake, but something we didn't understand, right? Sure. So it took longer than it needed to. Um, you know, so. What, so like if someone listening to this probably like, all right, he started this not that long after college. Right. And now revenues project to be, you know, two and a half billion, not sure. even 10 years, maybe 10 years into the business. Eight years. Eight yeah. years. So How seems possible? like the trajectory is, right. you know, up and to the right. But like there's got to be some serious low points along the way or points COVID where. COVID was a low point, right? Um, yeah. You know, everyone asks about the culture of the company. I always say like the culture of the company, the baseline of that is the values of the people in the company. I don't, I don't control it. We control who we bring in. Yep. But the environment of the company has changed a lot mm -hmm. from being 10 idiots above a bar to now we're a very corporate company with several offices. The COVID environment was terrible. Not not only was, you know, we, I can get into all the details. It was tough for everybody, right? No one knew what the hell it meant. You know, we had shippers who were saying, well, I'm essential in this state, but not in this. I mean, you look at COVID totally jacked up the supply chain. And, you sent, and you sent your workforce Remote, we which, workforce remote was a new thing for us. We laid a hundred people off. Um, that wasn't, that's never fun. We really had to tighten the belt, which before that was like, grow, 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 grow. I didn't, you know, just who cares if you wrecked into that, keep growing, you know? And so that was our mindset. And so that was a different move for us that we weren't familiar with, of, you know, slow down to speed mm -hmm. up. Uh, fortunately for us, our space really took off about three months later. Um, but having a virtual workforce was terrible, not terrible. It was a huge change trying to hire some kid out of college that, you know, who knows how they're thinking about the world. They're living in their parents' basement on a screen. We're trying to train them on the trucking business. And, you know, you can only be so successful trying to do that. We had no office. Um, you know, so, yeah, that was tough. But the low points, that was certainly one of them. Um, we haven't necessarily learned through failure, to be honest. And I think, I don't say that, I say that very gratefully, um, not braggadociously, but um, figuring out our cash flow in the early days, I mean, was really tough. I'm thankful that we had great investors that backed us through those times, right? So, um, you know, but it's just understanding the cost of your business when you're growing really quickly, just, you know, you need different things. So, I know I'm not giving you a great answer here. That's good. Um, that's fine. That's what comes to mind. I want to I want to touch on something you said, uh, and especially for people that are looking at building teams or joining teams, but the importance of retention and more specifically retention in sales, right? Yeah. Because you've said this to me before that, you know, you see um, real production in the second and third year. And if you're able to get yeah. somebody to those second, and in my business is the same way. And I would say for any sale, anybody building a sales team, that's something that um, is pretty standard, right? Mm -hmm. You get, if you can get somebody to year two, year three, year four, and you keep focusing on retention, um, they make more money and it's more of your top yeah, line, right? that's right. Um, so retention is something that you guys focus on a lot. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, and look, our retention this year is down. Well, I guess I should say it has improved by 50% over what it was last year. Mm -hmm. Last year was not a great year and the year before that was even more difficult. Um, I think specifically to sales if you ask one of our salespeople, what is the culture on the sales floor they would i would say it's performance management right i don't mean that in a bad way we have clear expectations of what winning looks like what your 
expected to do. Our managers understand what the expectations are. So they're able to communicate clearly with the reps. Um, you know, I think you have to bring people in that understand that you have to give clear expectations, right? And we've done a better job of that as of the last few years. But, you know, they also want to work in a company where they feel like there's a good vision. There's a purpose behind the business. Like, what are we doing here? Um, they want transparency. We do. I know you guys do all company, all hands. We do a lot of that. Yeah. Um, you're going to make them feel part of the team. Um, we, in the early days, we had like this no vacation. We thought retention was like, well, give them the no vacation policy, right? And we all know what that means. People take less vacation because they feel like they can. So, it, you know, we weren't always perfect, but I think... It's just, for us, a lot of it's engagement, helping them become successful. At the end of the day, people leave sales because they're not having success or they don't like sales. Um, and anytime you're hiring a kid out of college, it's tough because they they don't know what they want, right? And so, yeah, they're still trying to figure it out. Yeah. Our HR team, our t we have an HR <clears throat> team and a talent team, right? And they're always engaging with these people, making sure they feel like they're getting the coaching they need. They feel like some people just have a hot start, like I did, but other people take some longer and we don't want to lose those people. Um, yeah. And so, it's just a lot of communication, a lot of making making clear what we expect them to do um but also giving them the resources to be successful and i think at the end of the day our job is to you know bring people in train them up allow them to have success some people get burnt out they want to do a different role and that's fine other, other people i always say um regardless of how long they stay at the company i want them to stay there for a long time but i just hope that they learn something that allows them to be successful in their career and from a sales perspective i think um, we've certainly lost people. We've lost people that I wish we didn't lose and we could have done a better job with this or that. Or maybe the, the manager wasn't the right fit for that personality and we've, we've done a better job of that too. Groups have gotten too big. All the things that, you know, you ask about things we've screwed up. When you're growing that fast, it's hard to be perfect. But um, I don't say we've got it down to a science, but we've, we've iterated on it a lot to where I think it works pretty well. Yeah. But naturally, sales organizations will have turnover. You want turnover too. We want to pressure test people quickly. Yeah. If this isn't the right fit, the worst thing anybody could do is stay in a job that's just not they're gonna they're not gonna enjoy it you know uh they're not gonna work out for the company and so that first year really for us is making sure that we've got people in the right roles and yeah. you know that our managers can really develop people that are set up to succeed well you you brought something up that's relevant these days um there's this term you might have heard of it media is talking a lot about it it's called quiet quitting yeah i've heard of that yeah have, have you heard be, of it ned well, I have. You just kind of so, mail it so in, what, right? What's, what's the definition? Well, I think everyone. The, pro, the reason why it's networking. like so big in the media now, and people are talking about it and writing articles, is because there's a lot of different interpretations. Uh, my interpretation is this movement of people who are not really tied emotionally to the company. Maybe um, they're just doing it for the paycheck, and they're not going to do anything above and beyond. Um, but I think other people are taking it different ways. Um, but it kind of goes to what you were saying about people who if they're not enjoying it you don't want them to be there type thing and they shouldn't want to be there either and they yeah. shouldn't want to, yeah so um but in remote environments i think this is that's conducive to maybe that behavior where people don't feel as connected to the company right and they feel like they can coast by because maybe it's such a big company and they're working remotely so it's they're not as visible mm -hmm. so it's like easier to coast by um I think in sales environments that would be difficult. Like your number's your number, right? You just yeah. hit it on the head. Yeah, we don't. I don't think we have that issue. I'm sure we have people that. I mean, there was a couple times in the early days. You know, the was it Zappos or somebody's like, I'll pay you to quit. Yeah, I remember the you only kid. The only kid that quit had been there for like two weeks. Guy gets <laughs> like, you know, three <laughs> month, a month of pay. I didn't been there a month. But it, um, you know, sales you can measure out. Sales you can measure out. Yeah, there's a scoreboard. That's where you're going, right? Yeah. It's, and 
And this is where and I've talked about this before in this post COVID world where there's so many hybrid environments. Now we're hybrid. There's all these hybrid. Are you guys hybrid? Or are you all in? Uh, we're, I'll say hybrid. However, if you were to look at, you have to be in the office the first year. And it's yes. not because we don't believe in remote work. It's because we want them to be successful. And we You're believe learning. that they're going to be most successful learning in the office. Yeah, it's true. As they hit certain tenures, then they can yeah. go remote. So it's the idea of measuring output, right? If we can figure out how to measure output for every single function that we have in our companies, then you don't have to worry about when somebody's in the office or when they're not. You got to worry about how they're learning, right? right? How they're learning, how they're training, sure they're how they're the business, the business and how they're connecting. But... You know, how can we measure output in a finance role? How can you measure output in a marketing role? There are ways, it's just, uh, it wasn't as big of a thing as it always was. Sales was easy. I mean, salespeople have been working out of their house and traveling for years. This wasn't anything new to a salesperson. Now your team, uh, being a lot of inside sales and new grads, they gotta learn the business, they gotta collaborate, right. they gotta be part of the culture. Um, but sales had ways to measure output. It's how some of these companies that figure out how to put um, output requirements on other functions yep i think it's really it's really it's it's a to me it's a really neat outcome that came out of COVID, right yeah and, and how we and how we figured it I out i just hope for those people they realize they're at the end of the day if they leave most of these companies are still going to be just fine they're going to move on and bring somebody else in you know what are you doing right i mean go find a job that you can you know move forward in and have success so but i did see that it came out a few weeks ago yeah yeah how do you how are you adjusting like uh, imagine with the growth of the company every six months your role changes oh yeah not necessarily your title per se but what's expected of you and what the company needs from you sure uh has that been a like a lot of growing pains or for you has it been natural both um i think at the end of the day you have to know what you're good at right i know where i've learned a lot obviously but i've also known at the speed at which the business is growing it's not possible for me to grow at that same speed where my age was, where my experience was. Um, if I did it again, I would obviously know a lot more than I did the first time. Um, so, you know, as my role, you know, first couple of years was I was a salesperson. I was also running the company. Mm -hmm. Then I was managing managers. Then I was managing managers that managed other managers. I mean, so maybe 20 into 2018 or so, it got to the point where what I really liked to do was close deals, develop good salespeople. You know, I'm a sales guy. All right, that's what I wanted to do. But that wasn't what I was doing. I was forecasting and dealing with HR and, you know, the things that happen as your company grows. And so, um, yeah, I think I was talking to one of our board members. I'm like, it's just, it, it wasn't that I necessarily felt like I couldn't do it. I don't know that I was getting the most fulfillment. I was like, well, you got to go find somebody that, that create the role that you want to do. Right. And so yeah. we did, we found out a great CRO, um, has done an amazing job, learned a lot from him, learned more from him, you know, the, the, just really admire how he runs the business now. Um, and so I'm able to focus on the things I like. I was visiting a customer yesterday. And so that's most of my time is spent on the road with customers or engaging with our people. Yep. And um, I kind of get to stay away from the, the people challenges. You, that enjoy, I really you enjoy, enjoy that part of your job. I that's enjoy the thing, it. Right? It's, 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 you get to a point where you, um, you know, you do, we talked about this in our last podcast. Uh, you do every job so you can find somebody who can do it better than you. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And then do what you like doing, right? There, I, I've, yeah. I heard, a, 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 I think it was Vern Harnish when I heard Vern speak. He said, uh, he gave these examples of this, this, uh, this CEO who had grown a business. And the part of his job that he enjoyed the most was customer success. He just wanted to make sure his customers were happy all the time. Yep. So 
he hired people to do every other job and he became the chief customer success officer because mm -hmm. it's what he wanted to do. Yep. And he figured out other people that can do the rest of those jobs better than him. My, right. my real title should probably be chief customer officer. I'm not a title guy. I was, but I'll say a couple of things. Number one, I just want to help the business win. I don't care what my title is. You know, I, I'm not a title guy at this point. Were, were there vulnerable points in there where everyone knows when they kind of feel like they're sinking a little bit or they're not, they're a little bit lost and that's never fun. Yeah. Um, and I'll admit too, that as the founder, I probably had a luxury that many, that others didn't have, which was, I had the ability to say, hey, you know, I'm going to create kind of a role for myself. But again, I had to help the business win. And so um, there were, you asked about low points earlier. There were certainly times, there have been several times where, you know, a lot of people join a company when it's young and they expect, well, my name's Nad and I was here year one. So I'm naturally just going to like keep being the guy, you know, and somebody new comes in with a different set of skills, a different set of experience. And all of a sudden they get not only, not necessarily pushed out, but demoted. Or, so those were a lot of hard conversations, right? And, um, and they couldn't just say, well, I'm going to create a new role for myself. So I recognize that I was fortunate to be able to do that. But yeah, most founders can't, you know, they can scale with the business, but the idea of like running the company to Nat's point, there are smarter, uh, more experienced people that will ultimately make the company worth a lot, be a lot more valuable and do a much better job. So bring them in. But that's, that's a hard yeah. thing for some people to do. Yeah. What about that co-founder relationship? How's that changed over the years? I hope Matt listens to this. Matt and I have been really close friends for, I don't know, half our life now. Officiated his wedding a year ago. So we're very, very close. Um, I think early on, and some people say, don't get into business with friends or whatever. I think for us, it was an advantage. Now, mm -hmm. certainly, and that I've talked about this, it, it changes the relationship, yeah. even in a positive way, it still changes the relationship. Um, but we trust each other. We know each other. There's always, yeah, people go at it, right? And we've, we've had our you know, there's times where he's tried to call, had to call me out for different things and he was right and vice versa. But at the end of the day, we both wanted the same things. Matt is an unbelievable leader. He's got great vision. He understands numbers. I think I've gotten more done with numbers because I don't have to think about it because he's yeah. so fast. It's like, why am I even going to try to keep up? <laughs> um, so if I really thought hard about it, yeah, the early days, we were probably in each other's way a little bit. That's just natural with having a small team. And then really had to define our roles in that first year or two. We've hired great executive coaches that have really helped us think about the business and our relationship's probably never been better, right? Than where it is in the last couple of years. Part of that's because the business probably had a lot of success, but really, you know, we're friends first and um, really proud of him and how far he's come. And I think he'd probably see the same for me. So we're maybe the, uh, maybe the anomaly in a way. I know sometimes yeah. people have horror stories. That's I mean, not our story. You know, you know this, my, my one of my best friends is um, my VP of, VP of operations and close business partner and it's a, it's it's sort of a yin yang type thing what right. am i good at that that he's good at and vice versa i i don't know i i think uh, and I, we've known each other for 30 years i think getting into business with friends is great if you set the parameters right, right? you set i mean you set the expectations and the parameters and the boundaries early on to know hey look if this works if it doesn't work our friendship comes first right and and, and just the different conversations that people sometimes have around that um is huge and a lot of times they don't have them and what i've seen it fall i mean there's so many stories that you can i mean the um uh how close were uh wozniak and jobs right those guys were working out of a garage together right. mm -hmm. and i mean from all the documentaries i've read he treated was like shit but at the end of the day valued him more than he ever was able to share yeah. right well if you have a foundation of a relationship with someone I'm, i talk about this a lot but 
you can have tough conversations with them and you know it's not going to damage the you there's going to be fewer hurt feelings i think whereas if you don't have a great relationship with someone you have a tough conversation they may be telling themselves stories like this person hates me or they don't like me and it, it makes your life easier also because for instance tony one of the other co-founders and heather both of them they know we have that foundation of relationships. So I can send them an email and I don't need to add formalities and pleasantries to the email. I could be like, hey, I need this done. And they're not gonna automatically interpret that as, oh, Nick's pissed. Like, I can just get straight to the point and sure. no hurt feelings. So I always tell people like, spend the time on building that foundation of relationship because it'll save you time in the long run and it'll save you even more than that, like headaches, mm -hmm. less drama, yeah. right? And it's, it's, the, it's the investment of that time, right? The, the retreats, the gatherings, the offsites. Like when you first start a company, people are like, ah, oh, we don't need to spend time. We just, but the, the, the relationships that we build over that time are extremely important, yep. right? We talk a lot about vulnerability. How vulnerable are you getting with your teams? How, you know, what's the trust factor? I mean, we talk about this a lot in, you know, EO, an organization that Eric and I are, are, are a part of, but, um, it's huge as you build that foundation. Yeah, because if people know you on a personal level, then they understand more of the motives behind some of the decisions, perhaps, that you're making in the business. Yeah. So there's a few levels to that. Well, I feel like this is applicable, so I'm going to share it. <laughs> He's going to go there. Oh, there we go. So, you know, because you, cause you ship a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, uh, I went to uh, the doctor this morning for the first time, and I'm 45 now, and I haven't been to the doctor since I was 30. You know this because I'm talking about always talking about establishing care. I did. Got blood work done, and um, uh, when you turn 50, you have to have a colonoscopy. When you turn 45, now it's 45. I think I think they dropped it. Well, no, I was just there. Yeah. So I'm 45, and instead of having a colonoscopy, I now have a kit that was handed to me that I take home, and I I know where you're going. Yeah. Take a shit in it. Yeah. Right, and then I close it. And I seal it and I put it into a box and I ship it. Yep. And so this is the first I've ever heard of this. So it made me think. I'm like, people are just now shipping shit. Like, this is what we're doing. This is a thing now where there's like, how many times? I hope do it's you refrigerated. Think, how many times do you think the mailman or the UPS man, or the, it's, it's preserved. They put preservatives around it. Oh, okay. There's a, there's a solution that you put around. This, the is, this just turned into a, in the mail. went from PG-13 to... You know. No, it's just vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, we're just being vulnerable here. Well, but it's, but it's, it, it's, it's, it's dude, I would rather side note. Doing it's it. fascinating to me that yeah. that's a thing now. You know, the old, the old line is if, if you bought it, a truck brought it. So yeah, somebody's shipping. Yeah, yeah. So what's um, um, the story? I just finished the um, the book on the uh, the guy from Austin, from Westlake, that uh, started the uh, um, drug shipping. Silk Road. This, uh, Silk Road. Yeah, Silk Road. This this guy was shipping. Uh, was a, or it, it I drugs. put it all online and, and yeah. was mailing, basically mailing drugs. Yep. Like yeah, three years just now, to the listeners, most of our business is food and beverage, grocery, yeah, e-commerce. You know, okay. e you're, 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 you're not shipping shit. I just we're not in the medical us. space. Since we're nearing a wrap-up, I figured it was a good wrap-up story. Yeah. We'll see uh, uh, You know, we'll see if it gets edited out or not. Yeah. <laughs> we'll great. see what the video That's production hilarious. team thinks about this one. So you talked about groceries quick. Let's yeah. just transition away from that. <laughs> the stench. Um, do you guys have accounts with big grocery store chains or grocery store chains will use multiple different brokerages? Yeah, good question. Yes, we sh we ship for, well, I'll just kind of break out the business. 
about 40% of it is food, beverage, CPG, grocery, retail, all the major suspects that you would expect. Every aisle of the grocery store, frozen, fresh, you name it. Um, industrials, I'll say, you know, kind of your oddball manufacturing stuff from chemicals to, you know, again, if you, from the shampoo you put in your hair to the stuff you didn't even think about. If you don't really think about manufacturing, you realize like, wow, there's a whole process, this billion, multi-billion dollar companies that you've never heard of, you know, that are making one little piece of, you know, et cetera. So a lot of industrials, autos, huge. Um, we ship for the government. We ship for, I'm trying to think of something really odd. We ship, we, we did a lot of FEMA work during COVID. That was yep. really interesting. Um, so yeah, as far as, tell me the question again. So well, yeah, the biggest kind of industries and will like an HEB sign a deal? Oh yeah, who, like who would they work with? Yeah. So yeah, so I would say in general, um, large shippers, like massive shippers have majority of their spend with asset carriers, right? People that actually own trucks. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the foundation of the network and, um, and that's great. And so maybe 20, 30% of it goes to brokers. When I got into this business, maybe it was 10. So the trend of outsourcing has continued to, to grow. Um, they don't just work with one provider, which I think is probably a benefit to us. And, um, sure. you know, one of the tailwinds we've also had is that back in the day, there were really only, I'd say a handful of companies that could ship for the big enterprise clients. Mm-hmm. And now as more have popped up, those enterprise clients want to say, well, I don't want to spend so much with NAD. That's, I want to diversify that out across five NADs. Right. Yep. And so, um, we probably benefit from that as well. So yeah, it's, it's all, um, you know, a large, large shipper may use eight or 10 people just like us. And the relationship could be great. The service is great. At the end of the day, our customers sit at an intersection of giant cost center, right? They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on transportation. It's just, you know, they're customer service as well. They're trying to get freight moved from A to B on time. So the difference between you being then one or two or three versus seven, eight or nine is ultimately how you price it. And so we have a ton of data people. We have PhDs in data science that are constantly trying to figure out and forecast where the market's going to go. We have really smart people that are trying to predict the impossible. And yeah. so, um, BS to answer your question, they work with okay. other companies too. Here's a hypothetical for you. Yeah. Let's say tomorrow autonomous trucking becomes a thing. I hope it does. Well, how's that impact your business? Well, first off, autonomous is already here and autonomous for safety reasons is great. We should all, all your viewers should be very careful when they're on the highway. Most of the truck accidents you see actually happen from people mm-hmm. not respecting the fact that 80,000 pounds of, metal and freight is moving down the highway, you probably shouldn't cut them off and slam on your brakes and all that stuff. Um, it's not a safe, it's, it can be very unsafe at times, unfortunately. So the autonomous stuff, just like in our cars, it's, it's great that it's there. I think the driverless trucks is what you're talking about. Yeah, sorry. Um, I'll say a few things. I think in general, people probably underestimate technology in the short term, or excuse me, overestimate it in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. They're testing a lot of stuff. They're working with the government trying to figure it out. But really how it will be applied by most accounts is what we'll call corridors, right? And so let's use Dallas to Austin as an example. You drop a trailer in Waxahachie, there will be a lane on 35. That'll get dropped off in, you know, I don't know, town north of Austin. And you'll have trucks just constantly glowing, platooning. You hear them talk about sometimes. And ultimately, who gets to benefit from that? Well, the consumer does. But shipping companies with a lot of density that have the volume that can do that. At the end of the day, we're supporting shippers, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't even know where we fall. We're definitely a top hundred shipper in the country, probably around there. Um, and so your big, big brokers will become the clearinghouse for shipping, depending on what mode they specialize in. And so for us, uh, it's something that we talk to those companies that are doing it. We're watching it very closely. I think we're still quite a ways away. 
Um, but we would certainly take advantage because we have the density to ship all these different corridors, totally. these lanes that you're mm-hmm. talking about. So um, it's coming. I don't know when. I'm not, so I, the autonomous I, trucking where there's a driver, but they're only there in case the mach- like the computer screws something up so they can grab the wheel. That That's happening in what percentage of the, the trucking industry right now? I would say less than one. Okay. Yeah. But growing. But growing. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, it's like lane assist, right? Like yep. lane assist on a car. Like I was at a trade show in Northwest Arkansas a few months back, and it's really cool. I mean, these the technology is cool, and you know, the application's there. Um, there's some hurdles they have to clear, and I think people are very bullish on what what they're going to do long term. So, um, ultimately, it's got to be cost effective for you know, it's got to be safe. All these things, and so they're working through it. So I don't know if that's 15 years away, eight years away, 25 years away, um, but it won't be here tomorrow and so it's not like it's going to hit us at a left field we're yep and i think there will probably be a day where companies like arrive are using that technology got it got it be pretty nuts you ever see the chick-fil-a thing downtown like the robot that's delivering chicken sandwiches yeah, i haven't seen Dr- i think drones are coming like assist. within months not years i mean it, you hear all this hype oh, yeah. about that's gonna be weird when you're outside well, and you got drones dropping yeah. packages in your driveway it's so like, it's terminator man yeah it's, crazy. it's all terminator slash back to the future part two for me Type stuff, dropping people off at work on a on a drone, and you know, no more commutes. I yeah. watched Back to the Future two last night with my uh, uh, eight year old and ten year old, just trying to get nostalgic with them. You should watch and John then, Mulaney's definition of Back to the Future. I won't, I won't oh, I talk I saw, about I it, I but yeah, yeah. people okay. can watch it in their free time. Um, but yeah, and then Terminator, right? All the yep. computers taking over. It's happening. Yep. It's happening. It's a, it's a good thing. It's just how we manage technology. Eric, yeah. you've got you've got young kids. They're going to grow up in a world yep. where. Uh, you know, just managing, uh, all of us do, but managing, uh, you know, how they're dealing with technology is something we're facing every day right now. Yeah. So, well, uh, we really appreciate you joining us for this podcast. Last question. Um, talk about the next year to three years to five years for arrive logistics. Where do you want to see it go? Where do you think it will be going? So where's where's Eric going? Well, I'll answer, try to answer all that. (laughs) So the biggest challenges for the business or the biggest things we're focusing on, I should say, um, more offices, right? Austin, Chicago are very competitive. It's not even that they're competitive. The employment market's competitive everywhere. I'm sure Nat can speak to that. Um, it's a big burden on our recruiting team to say, hey, I want you to hire a thousand people to ship it only to two markets. Yeah. You know? And so it gives them a little reprieve to say, you've got Phoenix, you've got Dallas, you've got Tampa, you've got places where young people want to be. And now you have to hire, you know, 200 people in five markets versus 500 people in two. And so. Mm-hmm. We're working on that more multimodal, right? I said we focused um, a lot on domestic trucking. We purchased a company out of Guadalajara in January, so we've bought a company in Mexico. We'll keep. We're kind of at a weird point where, even though we want to get into other modes, the idea of building it organically, you can't keep up with the pace of the business, right? And mm-hmm. so M and A starts to make sense. So you'll see some M and A, more multimodal, you know, freight forwarding, trailer rental. Other words you guys probably don't care about, intermodal stuff like that, but. Um, I hope the environment of the office, I mean, that's going to continue to change. I hope the culture of the company doesn't change all that much. So long as I'm there, I don't think it will. Um, I'm going to be there as, as long as I can help the business win and as long as I'm fulfilled and adding value to the company, right? And if there comes mm-hmm. a day where that doesn't make sense, then I'll just, I've got three young kids. Wife wants to have a fourth. So, you know, she doesn't want me around anyway, um, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I love that you said uh, you still spend time uh, with all the training classes. Sure. Nice, great. I'm a people person first, right? And so, um, yeah, I think it's important that they, my door's usually open. I get slacks all the time from, I always try to answer, I'm not always, you know, answering it right away, but, you know, 
people uh, people tend to think that successful people have all the answers and that you should listen to them. At the end of the day, we're all just people, right? And so I try to just, they don't need to treat me any differently than you would treat, you know, Richard, the guy that manages our facilities, you know, or anything else. And so try to keep it as flat as possible and, and help them win. But yeah. Nice. Good uh, good advice for all of us. Yeah. Some good nuggets there. Thanks a lot for yeah. joining us. Thanks for that. Yeah. Good to be here. Yeah. The leaders that have had the most transparency over time, they're the ones that you remember. In times like these adverse economic times, employees don't want to hear happy talk. Work every day like somebody's trying to take it from you because they are. 